welcome, intrepid listener. This is Space Mummies from Planet X, and I'm your host, Evan C. Larson. And I'm really excited to get into this week's topic because it's a good one. Although, let's be honest, they're all good. Back in the recording booth this week, it's a rare nighttime recording session because this weekend it's supposed to get into the upper 90s, hottest it's been all year. Even though it's nighttime, it's still pretty warm in here, so it's kind of a race against time to see whether I can get an episode recorded or I melt, whichever one comes first. Also curious to see how my energy holds up. I did just have some coffee, so let's hope that carries me through. Make sure you follow me on social media, by the way. I'm at Killer Voice Guy on Instagram and Twitter, as well as my YouTube channel, Killer Voice Studios. And make sure you check that YouTube channel regularly, because every Tuesday I'm putting out something. For instance, this past Tuesday I released my second tutorial. This one discusses the necessary equipment that you'll need for setting up a home voiceover studio. So if you're interested in getting into voiceover, don't really know where to begin, that's a pretty good place to get started. I'll be releasing regular tutorials on voiceover basics, and the best way to make sure that you don't miss any of my content is by subscribing to my channel and enabling notifications. Now to be honest, it's been a week or a couple of weeks. I managed to set up a Fiverr account. So, by the way, contact me if you need voiceover. I will rock your project. I'm Devin Larson underscore VO on Fiverr. And I seemingly dodged getting COVID, which thematically ties into the topic for this episode, actually. I haven't seen any new movies just yet, but after my last podcast on House of the Dragon, which, go listen to that if you haven't already, I've watched the first two episodes, and I find myself enjoying it. It's kind of fun to be back in Westeros, but there are a lot of characters and keeping the name straight is still a challenge. I also managed to watch the first couple episodes of She-Hulk, and I'm really liking it. She-Hulk is a great character. If you're interested in comics, Peter David had a particularly good run, and the actress Tatiana Maslany is funny and entertaining to watch. The whole cast is great, actually. Marvel's been doing great work with their Disney Plus shows lately better than the movies, and yes, I'm looking at you, Doctor Strange. They've been expanding the MCU to include more female superheroes, which is always a welcome choice. Also, dun-da-da-da, I'm about halfway through Ford the Foundation. So close, I'm almost done. Recently, though, I've been captivated by my hands-on research for today's podcast because it's the first game I'll be covering. And boy, is it a good one. You see, horror for me is a natural fit for video games. I tend to think it's more suited to games than movies, actually. I mean, think about it. Most horror films kind of suck. Even with the good ones, there's a limit to how scared you can feel since it's difficult to place yourself in the movie. Whatever is happening is happening in the movie to a character that's not you. That level of distance attenuates the sense of danger to the point where horror movies feel more thrilling than scary. At least, for me. Maybe I fried my brain by watching too many of them, who knows. With a game, though, horror feels different. You are in control. You are navigating the character around unknown dangers. When you, the character, are trapped, or low on ammo and supplies, or whatever, it feels like you, yourself, are at risk. I don't know about you, but that does it for me. I find horror games scary, the good ones anyway. They get in your head, 
You start to feel them invading your thoughts, controlling your emotions, making you lose sense of reality, almost like a virus. You see, this episode I'll be discussing the brilliant refresh of the Resident Evil franchise, Biohazard if you're nasty, Resident Evil 7. There's no escape. You're part of the family now. Hit boy's got to eat. He got to have his supper. Come here, boy. Before we get to RE7, let's take a look at where this blockbuster horror franchise got its start. And fair warning, I'm going to be saying Resident Evil so many times during this podcast that it's going to lose all meaning. So back in 1989, the video game publisher Capcom, of Street Fighter and Mega Man fame, released a horror game for the Famicom, which was the name in Japan for the original Nintendo, called Sweet Home. This predated the entire survival horror genre by several years. The game was about a group of five characters trapped in a mansion, each with a different skill, while they are menaced by a ghost and other creatures. It was technically more of an RPG, but it did have a number of the elements that would come to define early Resident Evil titles, including a mansion setting, inventory management, puzzles, an emphasis on survival, and even a door animation loading screen, which would be a mainstay for the first few Resident Evil games. Now, Sweet Home was never released outside of Japan. Capcom attempted to remake the game several times, first on Super Nintendo and then later on the PlayStation, but kept running into licensing issues, and not for the last time. Sweet Home was tied to a movie license, so the choice was made to make a spiritual sequel rather than a direct remake. So in 1994, development began on a game helmed by Shinji Mikami and Tokuro Fujiwara. It was released in 1996 for the PlayStation as Biohazard, though, again, due to a licensing issue in America, Capcom ended up holding a contest in order to determine a name for the game in that territory. The winning name was, of course, Resident Evil. Now, at the time, Capcom needed a hit. They were kind of struggling to make the transition from 2D to 3D, and it's sort of fallen on hard times. Resident Evil reversed those fortunes entirely. It cannot be overstated how massively Resident Evil reshaped what would go on to become the survival horror genre, in fact, Resident Evil was the first game to be called survival horror. Although it wasn't the first 3D horror game, that honor belongs to Alone in the Dark, released for the PC in 1992. The game combined puzzles, a limited inventory, pre-rendered 3D backgrounds with fixed camera angles, 3D character models, limited saves, and a functional, if archaic, control system, later dubbed tank controls, where you would rotate your character to the left or the right and then press up to move forward. It was a necessity at the time because of the fixed camera angles and just the necessity of the original PlayStation controller, which didn't have an analog stick, so you had to make do with the D-pad. In the game, you control one of two protagonists, Chris Redfield, or the Master of Unlocking, Jill Valentine. They're part of this special ops team sent to investigate some murders in the vicinity of a mansion outside the fictional town of Raccoon City. Things quickly go sideways, and they become trapped in this strange mansion filled with bizarre puzzles and zombies. The goal is to uncover the secret behind the zombie outbreak, which turns out to be the result of a man-made virus. 
You see, an organization called the Umbrella Corporation developed this virus in order to manufacture and sell bioweapons, aided by a double agent in the special ops team named Albert Wesker. At the end, you face off against a super zombie called a Tyrant, before blowing up the hidden lab under the mansion and escaping. The game was a massive success. It did all these inventive things that action-adventure games just weren't doing at the time. For instance, ammo and healing items were extremely limited, as were saves, which required ink ribbons to be used at a typewriter. Imagine it, if you ran out of those ink ribbons, you couldn't save your game. Now, the puzzles I mentioned created a fascinating change of pace from the action and necessitated a lot of backtracking that drove the player through the game. Sometimes the solutions to those puzzles weren't immediately obvious and required a slight bit of lateral thinking. The puzzles mirrored gameplay in the popular PC game Myst. If you're familiar with Myst, there's no surprise there. Mikami looked to Western horror films for inspiration on Resident Evil, and this would be true for every other successive game in the franchise. The game was inspired by movies like The Shining, Dawn of the Dead, obviously with the zombies, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These movies influenced the narrow corridors of the mansion, the various creatures that confront the player, as well as the zombies, like I said, which at the time weren't totally played out like they are today. Resident Evil put zombies on the map again in a big way. The original Resident Evil also had live-action cutscenes and distinctly poor dialogue and voice acting, which wasn't uncommon for the time. Typically, they just grab whoever was around and throw them in a recording booth and say, okay, you do the voice. Over time, it's sort of taken on its own distinctive charm. Now, Resident Evil was such a hit that production immediately began on a sequel. And then Resident Evil 2 ended up being released in 1998, also for the PlayStation. It followed the format established by the original game, where the player controls either rookie cop Leon S. Kennedy or Claire Redfield, sister of Resident Evil 1 protagonist Chris Redfield. This time, the playable area expanded to include part of Raccoon City, which has now become overrun by zombies, a police station, and some sewers. The game is basically Resident Evil 1, but more polished, bigger, expanded. Resident Evil 2 held, for a time, the record for highest-selling game in the franchise at 6 million units across multiple platforms, and was eventually ported to just about everything. Resident Evil 3 then followed in 1999, and at this point they really were cranking these out like one a year, and starred a single protagonist, Jill Valentine. After the events of the first game, she escapes the mansion and then finds herself navigating the ruined and zombie-infested Raccoon City while being chased by an unkillable zombie called Nemesis. Nemesis could and did show up randomly as you moved from area to area and would stalk after you. Being caught meant instant death. It was a really ingenious gameplay mechanic, because what's scarier than a monster that you can't kill? Resident Evil Code Veronica then was the next to come out in 2000 for the Sega Dreamcast, R.I.P. you beautiful machine, and would see Claire and Chris reuniting to hunt down Albert Wesker, who survived from the first game and not for the last time. This journey then covered two main areas, an island prison and an Antarctic base. Gone were the pre-rendered backgrounds in favor of true 3D environments. The camera remained fixed and the tank controls remained, however. 
Then following a GameCube remake of the first game, which was really fantastic, by the way, Capcom produced Resident Evil Zero in 2002. This one was set before the first game and introduced co-op for the first time to the franchise. You control both Rebecca Chambers and convict Billy Cohen as they explore both a train as well as an umbrella training facility in the vicinity of the mansion from the first game. Now, to be honest, it was kind of annoying, since you had to manage two sets of inventories, and whichever character you weren't controlling at the time was controlled instead by the game AI. And that AI? Super stupid. There's not really a whole lot to say about that one. I almost forgot to include it in the list, to be perfectly honest. Then came the big one, Resident Evil 4. Shinji Mikami and crew took a while figuring out what to do with the next installment. They assessed correctly that the formula that they had been following in cranking out these sequels year after year was starting to grow a little stale. They decided that the series needed a refresh, so they got rid of the fixed camera and the tank controls. It was released in 2005, initially for the GameCube. The protagonist for this one was Leon, somehow promoted from rookie cop in Resident Evil 2 to secret service agent, chasing after the president's kidnapped daughter. It was set in an eastern European hamlet and nearby castle, and the gameplay and atmosphere were radically different. For one thing, the camera was now over the shoulder, and by holding down a trigger you could enter a precision firing mode and manually aim your gun to fire at enemies. And speaking of enemies, this was the first game in the series that dropped zombies entirely in favor of humans infected by a deadly parasite. They were way more cunning and organized, working to surround you and cut off escape in highly tense encounters. Just to say nothing of the Chainsaw Man, a durable enemy with a bag over his face that would chase you down and dismember you with a chainsaw. This was directly lifted from Jason Voorhees of the Friday the 13th franchise, specifically Part 2. Resident Evil 4 kept the puzzles, the inventory management, and most of the elements from previous games, aside from the update to mobility and enemy encounters. The precision aiming allowed you to damage specific body parts of enemies, although in most cases, obviously, shoot the head. It redefined third-person action-adventure games, and would influence everything from Gears of War to Mass Effect. Resident Evil 4 was a huge goddamn deal, for real. It sold 11.4 million copies, and many people consider it to be the high-water mark of the franchise, it's been since re-released on everything that you can think of. Your phone probably has it, to be honest. But wait, there's more. Resident Evil 5 was released in 2009 for both Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. It brought co-op back to the Resident Evil franchise, and while the AI still wasn't that bright, you could at least have a second player control the other character. The protagonists in this one were Chris Redfield and Shiva Alomar, agents of a counterterrorism task force that were pursuing a bioweapon arms dealer in Africa. And then they encounter more of the parasitically infected people from Resident Evil 4. As in 4, the variety of locales in Resident Evil 5, slums, marshlands, tankership, make the experience way more interesting than if it was confined to just one location. This was also the first game to primarily set everything during the day. The development team took the challenge upon themselves to try and create the same sense of dread and fear without the aid of darkness, and it totally worked. Now, I really like Resident Evil 5, maybe more than most, 
is kind of whatever if you're playing with the AI, but if you have a friend to play it in co-op, then the RPG-like system of weapon upgrading is compelling. Now, the series by this point had done away with all pretense of being a horror game. The elements were certainly there, but starting with 4 and then especially with 5, the gameplay and the atmosphere was all action. And then, 6 came out. Moving on. Uh, Kidding. But seriously, 6 wasn't that good. They kept co-ops with the campaign among three different sets of characters and then just sort of threw everything at the wall with relatively poor results. There was this high reliance on button-pressing sequences. They brought the slow-moving zombies back, and the plot made no damn sense. Now, as far as my favorite games in the series and favorite protagonists, Resident Evil 4 is for sure one of my favorite games of all time, and in the running for my favorite of the series. And stay tuned for later in the podcast episode, I'm going to rank my Resident Evil games. Resident Evil 2 is a classic. I love the Nemesis element from 3, as I think it makes exploring the map a tense experience. Resident Evil 5 is fun in co-op. Code Veronica is probably the best of the classic fixed camera style, so I guess what I'm saying is I like them all. (laughs) Um, My favorite protagonists are Jill Valentine and Leon S. Kennedy. The Redfields I just could never get into all that much, honestly. So with that overview out of the way, and hopefully you're still with me, As fun as those games were, let me tell you about a little gem called Resident Evil 7. Welcome to the family, son. Following the release of Resident Evil 6 in 2012, Capcom found itself at another Resident Evil crossroads. 6 was Capcom's second highest grossing title, but for the reasons I outlined earlier, most fans were turned off by it and the franchise felt like it was growing stale again. A sequel was initially in development that kept the same style of gameplay as 6, but was cancelled the following year. Then in 2014, Capcom CEO Kenzo Tsuhimoto called in producer Jun Takeuchi, who had previously worked on Resident Evil 5, and tasked him with leading development on a new take for the series. The first couple months of production involved about 10 people brainstorming all the different things that Resident Evil Biohazard meant to them. They ditched online co-op and the more action-oriented direction the series had been drifting towards and returned the franchise to its survival horror roots, emphasis on horror. Rather than develop an open-world environment, they decided to keep things constrained to one location, which had the double benefit of inspiring that same sense of claustrophobia and terror while also allowing them to drastically update the visual fidelity. And they decided to make the game first-person. It was a bold choice, but makes perfect sense in retrospect. After all, what better way to draw you into the atmosphere of the game and scare the shit out of you than change things so that you're no longer merely manipulating a character, you are the character. Think about it. Things can sneak up behind you, whereas before you could see everything around the character that you were controlling. By constraining your awareness, it amps up the horror factor considerably. The game kept a number of core elements from previous entries in the series. An emphasis on item management and a shortage of weapons and ammo remained. There are still the bizarre puzzles, though not as prevalent, I think, as in past games. Seriously, though, who has time to create a custom door lock that requires placing three different heads on a Cerberus Hound 
or secret passages that involve projecting the shadow of a strange art object onto a painting. Don't think about it too much. There's a greater emphasis on combining materials than in previous games, mixing chemical fluid with an herb to create a first aid med or with gunpowder to create handgun ammo is a routine gameplay loop. There are also a number of sections with enemies that stalk you, not unlike Nemesis in Resident Evil 3. You can almost always incapacitate them by doing them enough damage, though. So, in Resident Evil 7, you control series newcomer Ethan Winters as he explores a rundown mansion in the swamps of Louisiana for his missing wife, Mia. The mansion belongs to the Bakers, a family suffering the effects of an infection that has driven them insane and given them inhuman strength and regenerative powers. Ethan discovers that Mia is likewise infected before he becomes trapped in the mansion and forced to solve puzzles to escape, all the while hunted by members of the Baker family and strange slime monsters that emerge from areas of spreading corruption throughout the house. He's eventually able to escape and manufacture a serum that cures Mia, This is actually a decision point for the player who must choose between curing Mia and Zoe, the one member of the Baker family that is trying to aid rather than kill you. I picked Mia, so in my version of the ending, the two escape by boat, but then come across the wreck of an oil tanker and are attacked, stranding them on the tanker. Ethan is taken, and then control switches to Mia. So she searches for Ethan, and evades more slime monsters, they're just everywhere, and during the course of that remembers that she was in reality a mercenary tasked with chaperoning a bioweapon child that went out of control. That's how she disappeared two years ago. The child, Evelyn, destroyed that tanker ship and then was discovered by Jack Baker, which led to the infection that spread within his family. Mia finds Ethan and seemingly sacrifices herself to allow him an opportunity to escape and use a manufactured neurotoxin to kill Evelyn and put a stop to the nightmare. Ethan then returns to the mansion and confronts Evelyn, leading to a monstrous battle and the destruction of the house. He is then reunited with Mia, who survived, and airlifted to safety. So much like in past games in the series, you're confined to a single environment and to progress, you have to solve a series of puzzles in sequence. Ammo is scarce. I frequently felt on the verge of running out and reduced to using a knife to defend myself. Now in this one there are multiple videotapes that you can discover, and then when you play them in a VCR, they load a side scenario where you have to control a different character and complete a specific objective. There are usually clues in those scenarios that then help you progress in the main game. I really enjoyed these. There are also several sections where either Jack or Marguerite Baker will appear in an area and force you to either evade them or fight, although if you fight, they take a lot of damage before withdrawing. There are plenty of hidden objects like antique coins and bobbleheads that you can find hidden throughout the game. And as I said before, there's a huge emphasis on combining materials to create health items or ammo. So in my opinion, here's what works and what doesn't. The game is scary. Seriously, it's the most frightening entry in the series that I've played. The graphics are significantly improved from previous entries, and the art direction for different areas of the estate is varied and interesting. 
The Bakers are fascinating villains, and there are numerous showpiece sequences where you have to fight them. Jack, in particular, flaunts his regenerative powers by taking repeated lethal damage and then reviving. He stalks after you in this relentless, Terminator-esque way in close quarters, all while taunting you. In fact, all the Bakers taunt you in this really disturbing way. It eventually turns out that the molded, those slime creatures, are composed of mushroom cilia and or mold, which is the root of the infection that controls Mia and the Bakers. This has its roots in reality, by the way. There are documented cases of insects that become infected by fungus, which then end up feeding on them and hijacking their brains. The insects are then manipulated to ascend to a level where the fungus can receive the optimal amount of sunlight and nutrients, and then the fungus rains spores down on the other ants below to zombify them in turn. Look it up, it's a real thing. Enemy encounters are tense, boss fights more so, and the game is reasonably challenging on even normal difficulty. I died more than once. As far as the negatives are not quite as successful, I find a number of the sequences and boss fights require very specific actions by the player, and it can become a matter of trial and error to figure out the exact action you're supposed to take to survive the encounter. And there's not really a lot of room for error, so you can just find yourself locked in this sequence where you don't know what to do, and then you die, and then you try it again, and you die, and it just a little bit more leeway in terms of, like, you figuring out a solution on your own would be appreciated. The game wears its influences on its sleeve more clearly than any other entry in the series, in my opinion. During the planning phase, the Evil Dead had a huge impact on the decision to go with an isolated, ruined house. The final battle with Evelyn is 100% pure Evil Dead with the roots and all. Mia being possessed by the infection and then initiating a fight where you're forced to kill her, at least temporarily, is totally Evil Dead. As is having your hand severed by a chainsaw. Groovy. The Bakers strongly evoke the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That dinner scene uh, after you're first captured by Jack is right out of the film. The squalid condition of the house, the chainsaw fight with Jack, all Texas Chainsaw. The fight against a mutated Marguerite, however, is heavily influenced by the Exorcist. She turns all spider-like and skitters backward up walls and vomits at you, although it's bugs, not bile. The section with Lucas feels straight out of the series Saw with deadly escape rooms and traps designed to punish the player in gruesome ways. And finally, setting the game in backwoods Louisiana feels like it came from the show True Detective, the first season. The opening shot of the car on the highway and some of the promotional art seem lifted directly from that show. As far as memorable or notable moments go, as I said, the opening dinner table scene where you're first introduced to the bakers definitely makes an impression, especially as it's followed immediately after by the first sequence where you have to evade Jack in tight quarters without any real weapons. As a matter of fact, almost any sequence with Jack sticks out. The garage fight where you have to crash into him with a car that eventually explodes, at which point he makes you shoot him in the head just to prove that he can't be killed. Certainly the chainsaw cage fight next to the dissection room where he attacks you with what I can only think to describe as chainsaw scissors. Exploring the old house and then later the Marguerite fight in the greenhouse is notable. Great stuff, very tense. Fighting giant hornets sucks although constructing the flamethrower does make things a lot easier. I really enjoyed all the videotape sections, 
They felt meaningful, and that was a great mechanic that allowed you to explore other points of view. Then the tanker section, right as you're thinking that you've escaped, that was fascinating. I enjoyed the challenge of being stripped of your items and playing as Mia as she learns things about her past. And then the very end where you realize, spoilers, but if you made it this far, I mean, you don't care, that Evelyn is the ancient lady in the wheelchair that keeps appearing at random places in the house to weird you out. And then the fight with her giant face and tentacles that blows apart the attic of the house and then the special cameo by Chris Redfield right near the end. So as I said, it was a legitimately scary game for a change, and I praise it for that. See, ever since Condemned on the Xbox 360, a launch game, I've been a fan of first-person horror. I think games are the natural format for horror, and first-person just makes it more visceral. It was such a change of direction for the series. No Redfields, no T-Virus, just some guy stuck in a house with weird swamp people. They took a big swing, and I think it was a huge success. I applaud them for taking the risk. Following the release of Resident Evil 7, work immediately began on a sequel. That game was released in 2021 and was called Resident Evil Village, or Resident Evil 8. It once again stars Ethan Winters as he searches for his kidnapped daughter in a village filled with mutated creatures. It currently has a Metacritic rating of 84, which is pretty good. I guess it caught some criticism for the puzzle elements this time around, but I'm not entirely sure. You see, I haven't played this one yet, so there's not a lot I can say about it. I do hope to one day get my hands on a PS5 so I can play the definitive version. Okay. So without further ado, here is my ranking of Resident Evil games, not including 8 because I haven't played it. 9. Resident Evil 6. Socks. No surprise there. 8. Resident Evil 0. Also not super good. No surprise. 7. Here's where it starts to get interesting. Resident Evil 3. Hmm. 6. Resident Evil 1. The remake. It's the best version. 5. Resident Evil 2. Huh? Yeah. 4. Resident Evil Code Veronica. Telling you, man, I got a sweet spot for that Dreamcast Resident Evil. 3. Resident Evil 5. 2. Resident Evil... What's it going to be? Seven. Which means, obviously, one is Resident Evil 4. I mean, it's pretty close. I mean, four, it's just, it's hard to top. Maybe with a couple more playthroughs under my belt, I might change my mind about seven. I mean, it's up there. It's like one of the best ones. So by now, it should be clear how important Resident Evil is as a video game franchise. It established the genre of survival horror, innovated a number of gameplay conventions that became the standard for action games, and it's redefined itself entirely, not once, but twice. It's also become a multimedia phenomenon. You've no doubt heard there was a live-action film adaptation inspired by the games starring Mila Jovovich, released in 2002, that was followed then by six sequels. Though critically panned because... Let's be honest, they're not good movies. They nevertheless have grossed a total of $1.2 billion. 
This made the series, for a time, the highest-grossing film series based on a video game, although it's since been surpassed by Pokemon. The series has also licensed animated films, novels, comics. All told, it's grossed $5.84 billion, which, surprisingly, makes it only the second most profitable property that Capcom has after Street Fighter. Now, I could go on, honestly, but I feel like this episode is already starting to get away from me. I love Resident Evil. I'm such a huge fan and have been since back in the early days. I used to get all caught up in the lore and keeping track of when the Umbrella Corporation did what and what does it all mean. Not anymore, though. Totally normal now, as you can see. Anyway, that's Space Mummies from Planet X for this week. Again, make sure you follow me on social media. Uh, that handle on Instagram and Twitter is at Space Mummies. And go check out my YouTube channel for Killer Voice Studios so you can catch voiceover tutorial videos along with the podcast episodes in case you prefer to listen that way. Some people do. And make sure you subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast and my YouTube channel. You don't want to miss out on the content that I have coming. Speaking of which, I've got another great one for you coming up in two weeks. We'll be returning to science fiction for a look at one of the pioneers and masters of the genre, Isaac Asimov, as I discuss his seminal work, The Foundation Series. I know, it's finally happening. I'm excited too. See you next time. Mm-hmm.